What if we can positively impact society by reshaping the mindsets of young men? And while we're at it, let me ask you, what does it mean to be a man? My name is Dennis Meralda, a father, a teacher, a coach, a mentor, and a principal with over two decades of experience shaping the minds and characters of young men across the United States. These questions resonate if you're a young man looking to improve your life or a parent looking for tools to help your son become the best version of himself. The Building Men Podcast was created for you. What is up, everyone? Welcome to the Building Men Podcast, or welcome back if you are a longtime listener. As always, I'm your host, Dennis Meralda, joined today by a total badass of a human being. Megan Henry is a professional athlete, a high-performance athlete coach. She was a U.S. skeleton athlete, multi-sport athlete, just a total badass, and her her handle is the Savage Megla. We'll get into that, but wanted to introduce her to the podcast. Meg, what's up? How's it going? Oh my gosh, I am very excited to be here. This is going to be great today. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, absolutely. Well, we're going to start with your handle, the the Savage Megla. <laughs> like, where did the Savage piece come from? When did you become Savage Megla? Uh, it's been a long time. So I've, I've uh, had that handle. I, I resisted joining Instagram for a long time, like when, yep. it, you know, when it first came out. So it's been about a decade, though, that I've been on Instagram now. And um, I was given that nickname because I am small in stature. So for those listening, I'm about five foot two and a half. I tell people I'm five three. <laughs> and I'm like uh, anywhere from 120 to 125 pounds. And so um, I'm also a extroverted introvert. So I'm not the person who comes in and like overtakes a room. So I might appear like, oh, you know, she's just this little thing. However, I am quite savage because physically I'm very dominant. I can be very aggressive. I'm also very competitive. So there's like this duality to me. So, um, Meglet being small Megan. So I'm the savage Meglet. <laughs> so cool. And we met at the Inlifted event, um, beginning of October. Mm-hmm. And so there was a little meet and greet thing that occurred on Friday night. Didn't get an opportunity to connect then. And then I saw you backstage as Mark was prepping us for this big speech. We had about a 15 minute talk on this unbelievable stage And so there were the five of us backstage and you and I connected and it was cool to see people's, the the five of us, everyone had their own little way of going about prepping for the speech and you had a really (laughs) unique way of, of prepping for, uh, for the speech. So talk to us a little bit about what went on backstage before you went out to give your speech. Uh, I, I mean, I was just going through my speech as if I was talking. Um, but so my boyfriend actually also came backstage just to be a little audience member there and uh yeah I was just uh, hanging out but I I did go through the speech like as if I was talking to and it was funny because the day I got there um before the whole meet and greet the night before and I was like I'm gonna run over to the bird theater and see it because I mean you could see the pictures online right but it's it's always different in person so I'm like I'm gonna go see it so I know what it's like when I'm on the stage and what it looks like to be looking out and uh, they were filming something like some documentary or something they were about to be filming, but they did let me in. I got to sneak in and just at least see the place, which was cool. And, but I mean, we ended up doing that anyway as a group, which was great. Thanks Mark to be like, okay, we're all going to go in here. So it's not the first time <laughs> that you're on the stage is when you're speaking, which was awesome. That was great. 
And, uh, you know, we all went on there and ran and just set our first 10, 20 seconds on the stage just to get that, the dust, the rust off, <laughs> you know, get the, the nervous jitters out. And that was fabulous. Um, yeah, I mean, I had a gallon of water with me and I was all dressed and ready to go in a all white suit. And yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And you definitely like stole the stage as far as just your appearance. Again, (laughs) five foot two and a hook and like white and red hair. I like, so when you came out, everybody was just in awe of you. The other cool thing is having that opportunity to go through the, the drive run first, like the practice run, because I, I had never gone out on a stage quite like that before. And the lights were so bright. You could barely see anyone. I know. (laughs) Except for, and I mentioned it after we had an opportunity to give our speeches, they brought us up on stage. There were the five of us sitting up on stage. It was me. It was you. It was Ryan Sprague. It was uh, Joel Cochran and Jen Broxman. And they asked us questions about our preparation and how do we go about going through everything. And I talked about about you and your boyfriend. I said, first of all, I, you know, backstage and you were basically giving the speech and he was like four inches from your face as you're giving the speech. And I said, there were only a couple people that I could see in the audience. And so I saw my partner, Julie, my brother, Anthony, I saw Mark England in the periphery. And then I saw your boyfriend and he's sitting up front (laughs) on stage. I, I told the audience, I said, listen, I said, you know, coming from a pretty solid record of heterosexuality, <laughs> I said, this dude is one of the best looking guys I've ever seen in my whole life. And he has an <laughs> accent to boot. It just, and so it got a big laugh from the crowd, but what a great guy too. I mean, I watched him backstage. He was like your, your little corner man. He was, you know, prepping you, getting ready to go positive affirmations. So talk to us a little bit about that with him backstage, <laughs> what that was like. He's fabulous. So we met, we both did a skeleton, which is a winter sliding sport where you go head first on a sled going 85 plus miles per hour, experiencing five G's of force. And the only thing you're steering with is your body weight. There's no brakes. There's no steering mechanism on the same track as Bob sled. If you ever saw the movie, cool runnings. So that's how we met. He competed for great Britain. I competed for the United States. And then he actually transitioned into coaching. So he coached the Chinese team and then he actually coached the U S for a bit. And so he's very used to being that like a coach. Right. (laughs) And so he uh, bless him because I recited that speech a million times. Uh, and listen to it. I, I, he could re- definitely could regurgitate that speech because he heard it so many times from me uh, willingly, like he willingly, he gave a lot of feedback on things that, you know, as I was writing it and making changes to it, things that sounded like me or like, were you trying to force this, you know, a point here that actually isn't yours right. or do- this doesn't sound like something you would say. So that, that was really helpful. Cause he's like, you know, he knows me, he knows my voice. And that was a lot of fun. And um, yeah, and speaking of the lights, so I actually forgot what I was saying during the speech, because I was the one, the lights were really bright. And that was the first time I was ever really on a stage like that. And with bright, bright lights on me. And I, um, I was trying to still look at the faces of people. And I think what happened is not, I think what happened was my started to think like whose face is that. Right. (laughs) And then I just totally lost where I was. 
And luckily my boyfriend, Jack was there and he just gave me a cue. He, and so he, because he, was he saying knew numbers, he was saying yeah, numbers. he said numbers. So he knew like the next thing that was coming right. in the speech. So that was, that was fabulous. I mean, what a good coach. <laughs> so it was, I was very, very blessed to have him there. It was a really great, you know, environment to do that sort of a speech. And I am really proud because I just, I just stood there. I wasn't like, panicking or anything. And I just stood there. I did what we know. I did like, just took some deep breaths and I was like, I'll start talking eventually. <laughs> you know, like they're all looking at me. So it's like, it's fine. Exactly. It was, and yeah. you, you took that moment and you made it your own moment. And the other thing it, it really did was it helped the audience connect with you, I think in a deeper level, like that was a big deal being up on stage doing that. And it's really hard to memorize 15 minutes worth of content with no there wasn't a PowerPoint in the background or right. anything like that. You just had to go by what you had, you know, in your back pocket. So to take that space, to take a couple deep breaths and then to roll back into it, I think you won everyone over in that point of the speech. It was really cool. And I was backstage and I was just watching, I was standing next to Ryan Sprague watching everyone. It was, so it was a different, a bit of a different vantage point. And then you brought out the helmet onto the stage and you were like, yeah. this is all that's basically like keeping me safe. To learn more about our programs, including one-on-one -on -one mentorship coaching, the foundation, our Building Men Online group community for young men, or to bring a Building Men experience to your school, check out our website, buildingmen.io, or click the links in the bio. Now, back to the show. So I'd like to go back in time a little bit and when was the first time that you were like, all right, I'm going to get on my stomach and go 90 <laughs> miles an hour to a certain death? <laughs> so I, uh, I, I played sports my whole life. I, my main sports, I played field hockey and I ran track and field. And uh, I, so I played field hockey, division one field hockey. And my senior year, I was like, I'm not finished being an athlete yet. So I walked onto the track team, which was very cool. And after I graduated, I joined the army. And so while I was finishing up, you know, all of my basic training, my advanced individual training, I was recruited to do bobsled. And I was like, this sounds cool. I like being an athlete, so I'm going to go try it. And they told me to put on 30 to 50 pounds. <laughs> Again, I'm five foot two and a half. So that's very unrealistic. So I, uh, I was like, I, I can't do that. And they told me to switch over to skeleton. So I did. And that was in, uh, about 2011. And so it, what, what they do is they start you lower on the track, you know, that's like the bunny hill version of the track <laughs> and they gradually move you up and then, up, but it's very quick. Like you end up going to the top of the track in like a week's time. It's a very quick process, a very quick learning process. And I, I think that's because the United States is behind like a lot of other countries. They start when they're very, very young, whereas the U S although they're getting better, they traditionally had recruited from college athletes because they're like, you know, they've already been training, doing something they, and we're going to try and transfer these skills because they, they're still competitive. They could still compete. So uh, it's a little bit of a rushed process <laughs> in the U S to get to the top of the track. Um, and it, it's so fun. So that that's when I started, I started in about, um, 2011 and then I was the national champion in 2012. And so I had like a, you know, it was a, a really, like I said, drinking from a fire hose, trying to learn what is going on that the 10,000 hour rule 
is very difficult difficult to attain in skeleton because it's something you only do six months out of the year and then you get three training runs or excuse me three training days two training runs per day before you race so it's a very you're expected to be an expert very very quickly and um in that process like i i come off and i'm national champion which is fabulous and then I actually I experienced um, blood clots in my lungs that that like just several months later, um, and it was from a birth control that I was taking. And I was, I was in a relationship at the time, and my my boyfriend at the time was like, I wasn't even near him, right? We weren't we weren't even in the same place, but he was pressuring me for a long time, uh, over a year to to get on birth control, and I was very very hesitant to do that and then for whatever reason I just was like all right fine you know I'll do it and um so I just caved and so within 10 days of taking this birth control I started to have difficulty breathing and it got so exponentially bad that I couldn't even hold the conversation I couldn't walk up a flight of stairs and so uh and I went to a number of doctors and I was like this is what happened. I started taking this thing. Like I I eat the same, I go to bed at the same time. Like everything was super regimented. So I end up, uh, finally, after I saw five doctors, I saw a pulmonologist and he was like, look, I think that this is really serious. And so I need you to get a CAT scan and, and go to the hospital. And so they ended up saying like, it looks like you've got, you know, paint splatter, just all over your lungs, you've got a huge claw off of a main branch of your pulmonary artery. That's why you're having such difficulty breathing. And, uh, you know, you may never be an athlete ever again. So that was definitely uh, flipped my world upside down at the time. But I learned a lot about myself, like listening to your intuition and sticking up for what you believe is right being your own advocate, like had I just listened to the first doctor, I I might not have survived, you know, it was just like being really persistent. So I learned a lot, a lot from that and just having to come back and, and overcome those types of obstacles. I just believe that everything happens for a reason and what we perceive as obstacles or quote unquote failures, they, they're ultimately there to bring you to your, to your highest highest self, higher, 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 uh, highest good rather. Absolutely. And I will start, I have so many questions there. I'll start with the most recent first. When you got off the, the birth control pills after you saw, after you saw however many doctors, how long did it take you to get to a space that you can compete again? Was it, you know, what was the, the recovery process like for you? So I was out for a full year, um, from skeleton. It took about I would say eight months or so for me to get back. Um, I was on blood thinners. And so at the time, I mean, that was in, you know, 2012. So blood thinners have certainly changed, but at the time it was, it was discouraged <laughs> to be doing like heavy lifting and intense exercise. Cause they just didn't know, like they, it was just such a risk at the time. So I wasn't really training and doing that much while I was on those things. And until I was cleared of having, uh, any like clots that were at risk of breaking off and things like that. That was about an eight month process. Wow. So, but I was out of skeleton totally for a year, which is, which is really tough to, you know, uh, just like, just like anything, if you stopped 
if you've stopped speaking for a year, if you stopped skiing for a year, like, you know, you <laughs> anything, if you stop doing it for a year and you try and come back to it, it's just, you know, there's a, there's, again, there's another learning curve. You got to like dust the rust off and figure out where you were. You just aren't quite where you were when you left. <laughs> Absolutely. And when you're, when I think back to, you, you know, you telling me about the first time that you did it, you know, it's like the bunny slopes. So they take you up a little bit and then there's this <laughs> gradual increase, but the gradual increase was pretty steep right <laughs> yeah. what you know when during that time if if at all were you like holy shit like i am like doing something absolutely <laughs> nuts like going downhill really really fast like did it ever hit you or were you just like oh, i'm along for the ride uh no i mean uh, the first time even from down low so when they start you lower on the track you still are going 30 40 miles an hour which like in my mind, I'm like, that's not fast. But when you're going head first and you've never done it, it's still like, whoa, this is a very weird sensation. It's very, very different. And so, uh, and your brain is, you know, you're processing all of this new information and new stimuli. So it's, um, I knew it was fun at that point. And there's just so many, like, as you pick up speed and everything, there's so many nuances to the sport that make it, very addicting <laughs> because it's like you have such a short amount of time to perfect what you're doing and then once you feel what it's like to be successful even though that may happen one out of 10 times it's it's like you're just chasing that yeah. thing so it, it, it becomes very like that there's a high to it there's an addiction that comes to being like oh, I can nail that again I've done it one time I can do it again so <laughs> when very you were thrilling. growing up, were you like the kid, the adventure seeker kid? Were you like skateboarding and surfing and like, <laughs> oh, I could go jump on this and do this and backflip here out of the off a diving board? Like, who were you as a kid? Were you that kind of kid that did those things? Um, a little bit. I was, I was fairly shy. Um, I will say I was super adventurous. I loved roller coasters. Uh, when I was very young, I was like, I'm going skydiving on my 18th birthday. I was looking forward to it for like 10 years. <laughs> and so there are aspects of me that are, that were like, that were like an adrenaline sort of junkie type person. And, um, so this was fitting. It did fit. Like my parents were not surprised. Um, they were like, oh, okay, this sounds like something Megan would do. <laughs> So when I think about training for a sport, right, if I'm training for football, I'm doing a lot of squats and deadlifting, some bench pressing. If I'm training for, you know, being like a distance runner, like I know what, it, what is the training that is needed to be a skeleton athlete? So we combine like Olympic weightlifting on, you know, all of that squatting. You're being really, really strong with the explosiveness of a track athlete. So you're combining both of those things. You want to be really, really strong because you're pushing a weighted sled. For me, my sled, at, when they change the, they change the weight rules. I mean, my sled was like three quarters of my body weight. It was ridiculous. So you have to be strong, even though the friction is different. It's not, you know, it, it's obviously a bit easier when it's on ice, um, the, so you have to be explosive, strong to be, be able to push a weighted sled, accelerate the sled as fast as you can. Cause that's the only time that you can generate momentum is at the start. You have got a running start. 
push as fast as you can and get on the sled. That's the only time that you are actually like generating other than steering correctly, ideally, like you're trying to keep the momentum as much as possible, but that's the best opportunity to build that speed. So being super strong, super explosive, that's what it takes to be a skeleton or bobsled athlete. So, all right. I've, I'm like, my mind's going a million miles a minute here. So I'm thinking about, they wanted you to gain 30 or 40 pounds or whatever it was to be a bobsled athlete. So to take that transition and do skeleton. So now you're going from laying on your back to laying on your stomach and you have to basically sprint on ice, pushing something that weighs 90 pounds or something like that as fast as you can, and then jump on. So is, did your size and frame and weight help you because you were able to be faster or if you weighed a buck 70? you know, would that be better for you being a skeleton athlete? It would have been better for me to be heavier. Cause again, it's still a gravity sport. So I was one of the smallest women in the world on world cup competing, um, for a long time. If I was still competing, I just retired last year. If I was still competing, I'd be one of the smallest women in the world still. Uh, it was the smallest for the long time. So the, the heavier you are, it helps because if you like, if you were going to, let's say tap a wall unintentionally, but that does happen, then you end up slowing down more so than someone who has more mass, right? Because they're going to be able to take the hit and keep going and they're, they may, it does just doesn't affect them as much. So there is an advantage to being heavier. There's aerodynamics at play as well. So like taller people are more aerodynamic sometimes. Um, it depends on the person. It depends on their whole body shape and everything. So it's, it's really unique. There's, there's so many variables that go into it. Absolutely. Well, so there has to be that like sweet spot where you have to be big enough, but not too big to where you're yeah. not fast anymore. <laughs> like you can't be two and a quarter trying to do this as well right, for a right. female athlete. So now I'm on the, I'm on the scale. What's it called? The actual. Yeah. Uh, you can call sled? it a sled. Okay. Yeah. So I'm on the sled. And I'm like, I, I hit it perfectly. I'm running as fast as I can. My momentum's going. How do, like you, you said, you use your body weight to steer. Like, how does that feel? Like, what are you doing? Are you shifting your shoulders, your hips? Like, what is that? How does that go? So if I were to stand and put my hands on your shoulders, it would literally feel like you were just pushing one of your shoulders into me into my hands. So it's, it's so subtle. And, and when people are first starting, they think that they've got to be like cranking their whole body weight, but because the sled, the sled flexes, um, it's just a metal frame and you're just, it's torquing. I mean, it is so subtle. So as you like get more experience, you realize how little you need because, um, there's just a fine line, right? You want to be like on the border of being out of control. And the more that you steer, so if you're steering really hard, you're also cutting ice, you're creating more friction that makes you go slower. So it's like, what's the minimum effective dose for steering? And th there's like tens, hundreds of a second that separate, mm -hmm. you know, coming in first place than coming in eighth place or something like that. <laughs> so talk to us a little bit about that. Like one, what's the mindset around if you move your shoulder a quarter of an inch more, it could be, you know, the, the difference between winning or losing. What does that do to your mindset as an athlete? <laughs> it, it's tough. It's tough because, uh, you know, as humans, we are, we, we end up comparing ourselves to other people, right? That's a, a natural tendency. And so 
it's like people, and I did this early on in my career, which um, I was super perfectionist trying to be like, well, I need to steer absolutely perfectly. However, like, like I said, you're just trying to do the bare minimum to, to get an effective steer. And it's so people who have the most beautiful looking lines, you know, on video and when you like rewatch races and stuff aren't always the fastest because it's like, yes, it looks really pretty and really nice, but are they actually generating momentum forward? So it's, it's a like mentally, I found skeleton to be one of the most toughest mental challenges. And, and that also, again, was what made it fun. Um, it, it was stressful at times for sure, but it, because it's like, it was such a mind game, just having to be like, I trust that I have the ability to do this. Um, that when I did my absolute best, I had no idea what other people's times were. I didn't pay attention to their times. I didn't pay attention to where the rankings were. I just went and did my own thing. So it was a very uh, interesting balance between that like relaxation that's required and also going 85 oh, miles yeah. an hour. So it's a really zen place to be in <laughs> i'm fascinated with athletes and their preparation not just leading up to it so you were saying the deadlifting the squatting the sprinting things like that but in the moments before so playing baseball like i'm a student of like before a batter gets into the box right they tap the plate with their left hand with the bat they dig in with their left foot they shake their ass a little bit they put the bat on the shoulder like a pitcher like <laughs> i would have my pre-game or my pre-pitch routine a free throw shooter, they do the same thing. They bounce the ball three times. They flip it up in the air, whatever it is. For you, say the minute before you're getting ready to go, what is your preparation? Like what's going on in your head? Are you do, are you do like you tap your foot three times here and then spin around and then say the <laughs> national anthem? Like what's going on in your head? So definitely everybody, you can see it. Everybody's got their own routine. Uh, everyone in, so there's a start house that all of the athletes are in before they walk out. And for the most part, everybody's doing some sort of visualization in their mind. So you can see them. And it's funny because they'll be there with their eyes closed and they're doing like this. And we don't do that. Like we, you're literally laying there. You're like, <laughs> you're not doing anything, but they're just seeing like the, what the track, you know, the, the way that the corners are going and things like that. So you see people visualizing and just trying to, for me, I was just trying to be very, very present. And um, I used a lot of like prepared self-talk that I would reiterate to myself about what I'm capable of doing and just really trying to, uh, especially cause at the start, there's a, usually a, a crowd of people as well. So, uh, it could be easy to be distracted and, and see, you know, see people who are out there watching and all of this other stuff. So for me, I was very, very present. I had my own little routine where I like, I clapped my hands and then I made a, like a, pyramid with my hands and I looked at my hands and then they, so they, they, they announced like when you're going to go. And then I would like take my jacket off at a certain time. And I would like shimmy my shoulders, almost like the Conor McGregor. Uh -huh. And I, then I was done. Like then it was, it was already done. Cause so as soon as you're starting, like the nerves and all of that go. And so it, it was a really cool experience that I definitely 
uh, appreciate now that I don't do it anymore. You know, it's like, oh, that was that was very, very right. cool. <laughs> and the, the thing is, too, I would tell when I was coaching baseball, I would tell kids like you don't it doesn't matter what it is. It just you have to have something like something to get yourself moving the visualization piece that, you know, your body's doing the same thing to, so this way you can recall it, you know, when you need to yeah, the moment. The consistency. Yes, yeah. 100%. So, I mean, I need to ask too, was there ever that time where you bit it and you came flying oh, yeah. off and <laughs> it, like, tell us a little bit about that. And then did you have that moment where you're like, I can't get back on there. I, I don't want to do this anymore. So, uh, I have done that a handful of times and, uh, they're very, very scary. And so, um, the first time I did that, I was very new. It was a pretty, I essentially came out of this corner and like barrel rolled in it, but it was a very gentle, luckily gentle experience. And so, um, other places that I had a crash like that, I actually did that on my home track and that, so that is unnerving right because it's supposed to be a place that you're really good at <laughs> and so and I crashed on my home track and uh luckily you know your 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 subconscious mind helps you a lot in those situations because it's a fight or flight um fight or flight situation so time really slows down so I knew like what was happening I could see in this one crash like I lost my sled for example I could see it going away from me and then I was like, okay, I've got to keep my body moving because you can get ice burn really bad. So you have to keep your body moving, but we have shoes that have hundreds of little spikes on them. So you don't want your feet to get stuck, you know, rip something or twist your leg, you know, it could be really bad. So you end up having this super heightened sense of awareness. And so I was like, man, these, these guys who are like these big wave surfers and like all these athletes that are doing something super crazy that are on the brink of, you know, like life or death, they end up having this super honed in focus. It's so, so heightened. And you know, like, you know, what's going on. It's very superhuman. And I, I had an, another crash, um, my last season of competing, it was very scary. Like other people were like, Whoa, that was so scary. And, um, I knew it was going to happen. It was this corner. That's like a 360 degree corner. And I knew that I didn't hit these steers. And so I was like bracing for something unpleasant to happen at the end of this corner. And everybody was like, I thought you were dead. You know, it's just it was like so bad. Um, but I was able to at least like keep myself and I, I held onto the sled and was able to pull myself back onto the sled. So it's, it's so interesting. I wouldn't like, recommend doing it like I didn't enjoy it <laughs> yet at the same time it is you end up having this so like heightened your adrenaline everything's working for you and so what I would impart on people is that when you feel like that nervousness and all of that stuff that stuff is it's good and so I I always try to reframe my nervousness as excitement because your body is preparing to do something important it's increasing your focus it's increasing adrenaline it's it's actually helping you it's producing its own pharmacy within you to enhance your performance and what I found was if I was not able to immediately go again that's when your mind starts to play tricks on you. And so if I had the opportunity, like I did for that crash where everybody's like, I thought you were dead. I, <laughs> I asked, 
can someone please evaluate me for a concussion? Cause I don't know my adrenaline is so high. Like, I don't know. And, and if I'm cleared, you know, like my, my coaches were all like, you know, you don't have to go. Jack actually was coaching me at the time. And he was like, you don't have to go again if you don't want to. And I was like, I have to go. Cause if I don't go, I will not be able to sleep. <laughs> you know, my God. That, yeah. <laughs> like Jack could get me on a skeleton sled. I mean, that guy, I like, I'll do whatever he asked me to do right now. So I'm curious too about like, um, a basketball court, they're standardized across the board, a football mm -hmm. field, they're standardized. Baseball fields are different though. Like the way Yankee stadium, the dimensions of the outfield is different than Fenway park is different than Wrigley field. Is it the same thing on a bobsled track or a skeleton track? Is it different based on, is there like a home field tra track or so to speak? Yeah, definitely. So every track is different and that's what makes it so challenging because if you don't have a lot of experience there, uh, usually people who, you know, if it's their home track, for example, they have an advantage. Um, other people sometimes, you know, have an upset. They upset the home, <laughs> the home, um, home athletes. So every track in the world is different. That's it. It makes it exciting and uh challenging because every single one of those tracks has its quirks it has the difficult corners that you need to be aware of and focus on so yeah all of them are different is there a standardized length that it has to be uh they're all around about a mile um i don't actually know if there's a limit to how long they can be but just I think for budget purposes, right. and <laughs> they're then, usually under a mile or around a mile. The thing is like to make it like a world record or an Olympic record, you would think there needs to be some level of standardization because if the tracks are more difficult, it would mm. take people a longer amount of time or I would think to get through it. So that's got to be difficult with things like that. Like if you're doing track and field and you're running, you know, the 200, like it's right. always going to be 200. There's not right. going to be like an alligator <laughs> pit or whatever in the middle. Um, but that the skeleton track and bobsled is it's got to be really interesting as far as like world record and, and competing in that capacity yeah so it's just like that track has the a record okay, just for every record. single track yeah every single track has its own uh start record Makes and sense. uh and downtime record and um yeah it's it's really really interesting because it's there's certain features that each one of the track it has to have certain features um for example there's a thing called the chicane and so that's a crooked straightaway. So there's, there's different like elements that a track has to have at minimum. Um, other than that, yeah, there are about a mile. They're anywhere from 15 to 22 corners long. So, yeah. Wow. Do you remember the one that was the most challenging? Oh my God. The one that I was just talking about that I okay. crashed at, uh, Altenburg was challenging for me. Um, at least last my last season, it was challenging because I had increased my sled, um, my sled um, weight because the rules had changed and my body weight was the same. And in retrospect, and Jack, while he coached me, actually told me that you should take the weight out of your sled so it will be easier to steer. And I was like, no, I need all the weight that I can so that I can perform and finish higher. And, <laughs> and it would have, it, that's why I ended up being in that situation. Cause I could not control the, I couldn't my body with my body weight. I right. couldn't control the sled. So, uh, that track was not a favorite of mine. And then, um, the, actually the, 
the Olympic track in Beijing, I got to train at. I didn't make the Olympic team. I was an alternate, but we did have a test event there. And that track was was challenging too. It was just different from any track that I had ever been on. Um, and I mean, it was a lot of fun, but it had so many aspects to it that I had never experienced before. So it was very, very challenging. So Meg, you mentioned there was a life lesson that you learned and you said like doing what you were doing, you were always on the border of being out of control, Mm -hmm. which is, I mean, you could definitely extrapolate some life lessons as far as being in a space where you're willing to take the risk and not playing it safe. And, you know, not where you're like out of control in your life, like, you know, doing some crazy shit, but like being in that space where you're making yourself uncomfortable. What's another lesson that you learn from being a skeleton athlete that you were able to take that and apply it to what you're doing now? Oh man, there, there are a lot. I luckily, I learned so much from my experience as an athlete and, uh, one that you really do have influence over the events in your life. You really, really do. You have so much power. And so the, I learned that I was able to create outcomes based on changing my beliefs about myself, how I talked to myself. And so I was able to set uh, multiple track records. And I like I made my first World Cup team through just visualization and self-talk. I just reiterated these same things over and over again. And because your subconscious mind will not let you experience something that you don't believe is true or possible. And so for, for a little while, it was like, especially early on in my career, I'm like, I have this goal where I want to be on. So the world cup team is the highest tier of racing. And I was like, I want to be on the world cup team. At the same time, there was a part of me that felt like I couldn't do it. So I was always like, just on the brink of making the world cup team. I would be hundreds of seconds, you know, it was just out of reach uh, because you, excuse me, you end up being your own self-fulfilling prophecy. And so I I learned so much from that. And then, um, like I said, I was able to create a lot of success. And at the same time, I was able to not make an Olympic team because I was shifting my attention from my performance to other people's performance. And I was, I held a lot of attachment to like prior, um, prior results and things like that. So I missed, I missed the whole season before the Olympic year, this past Olympic year because of, of COVID I'm in the army. We just, they limited how much we could travel and compete. And so I went from being like really confident in what I was able to create to having such an attachment to that outcome that when I didn't do it, like when I, when I didn't start the season off, absolutely crushing it. I just panicked. And I guess what I would, would say, long story short, is that like, you don't have to control like every little bit of it. You can, you can hold your vision on the outcome that you want and like, let the universe surprise you with what the details are. That that's like the biggest, biggest takeaway that I took from skeleton is like, you can accomplish anything that you want you as long as you are like your own biggest hype man and you visualize it and you tell yourself and you reiterate that over and over again and and change that belief and everything in between the in between doesn't have to be perfect you know that's like the exciting part that's that's what life is all about 
It's interesting too, Megan. I appreciate you telling us that. I was going to ask, like, how do you overcome that? But you definitely said it. It's like, what does the hype man say or your corner man say to you? Um, the podcast is called Building Men, obviously. That was my my mission. Mm-hmm. But I also am raising two daughters, right? And they're 16 and 13 years old. They're both athletes. What advice would you give to young women that are, you know, they're, they're fierce young women, they're competitive, um, they're living in a space where sometimes that is seen as hyper-masculine or, mm-hmm. you know, that's like an unattractive quality, some might say. So what, what would you say to empower young women who are also athletes? Um, so are you saying like being an athlete is hyper-masculine? Is that what you mean? Or so the, it's just like a, some a, people a think masculine about that. Like, Yeah. Like, yeah. just like some people think that like, we're, oh, yeah. you know, she's like a dude because she plays this or like my daughter <laughs> wrestled last year. So like, you know, like that's a, that's a boy yeah. sport. So what, what advice would you give to my girls? Definitely. Okay. So this is awesome. So I've been, I'm so in the military and in sports, it, it can be it may seem challenging to be like fully accepted and respected in an environment dominated by men. However, I think it's so important to keep showing up as that strong female, because that also influences the the men in that space as well. And what I've, I've been fortunate and also unfortunate to serve with men who were very uncomfortable by that. And so it's interesting because the you know what we've been shown in our lifetime as like a what an alpha male is is really not it (laughs) that's really not what an alpha male is and um a real alpha male is not threatened by like a really successful female because um they they understand and, and recognize and appreciate that like there's there are masculine and feminine qualities about both of us, about, yes. about females and, and males. And I think also having like, you're going to teach the men in that space a lot too. And, and being able to have, it's, it's different to coach women. It's very different. I've had, I had male coaches who I've really, really liked and some like who, who had no idea how to coach women or just, we are different. And so if you can like, just show up and be like, I belong here and you know, I, I want this, I have dreams, I have goals and I have aspirations, like hundred percent, like stay all in <laughs> because other people will, they will, they'll recognize it. They'll appreciate it and respect it. And I, I think that's really, really important because that elevates everyone around you as well. And it's, it's interesting too, in this space, I get asked so often, like, okay, what about the girls? What about the girls? Don't you think the girls need help and assistance? And 100% I do. But one mm-hmm. thing that I can do is if you're building stronger men, it's helping everyone as well. Yes. Like if you were in a space like serving in the armed forces or being an Olympic athlete, if the guys in that space were not threatened by your badassery, I'll, I'll say it, it's a better <laughs> space for everyone. So what advice would you give to uh, a young man out there who's really struggling with that question that I just asked you? Like, what advice would you give to a kid in middle school or in high school that might be intimidated by someone who is a badass in that space? Well, I would befriend them. (laughs) (laughs) And then, like, honestly, it's what another person does. And this is hard even for me to this day. Like, what another person is doing is not reflective of what you do or do not possess you know like you are worthy and deserving as you are and I think 
being willing to be vulnerable or not as good as or whatever um, to like a female or another male, whoever it may be, is there's so much power in that. There's so much power in being like, I really love who I am. I like who I am. And I appreciate me and all of my my quirks and my my advantages, my disadvantages. That is like that that is beautiful, right? Everybody likes someone who's really authentic and and who um is unapologetically themselves. One of the reasons actually that I even like started talking to my now boyfriend was because I was like, he is just unapologetically him. And it was so attractive to me. And he, and he's very, very kind. Like he's, he's a really kind, kind person. And he is, doesn't have to be this over dominating um, figure. And I'm not saying like, that's just not his personality, but we've been taught that men are supposed to be like super, super tough and they like come and they dominate the space and that's what's alpha. And that's not true. Like uh, there's certainly like very masculine aspects to an alpha male yet at the same time, like they are able to be vulnerable. They're able to have tough conversations. They can relax. They can meditate. They can do yoga, breath work, whatever it is, you know, they can, there can be these softer aspects to them. Like that is actually very, very powerful. And so I hope that like the young men listening understand that. And like that having conversations, like true emotional conversations and being able to express yourself is actually a position of power. Awesome. And I've had several men try to say it in that way but coming from a female female athlete badass human being saying the same type of thing will hit a little bit different to the young men (laughs) who are listening to this right now i really really appreciate you taking on this journey right there meg so um last little piece right here i i want to respect your time and i feel like i could keep asking you questions for the next two hours at the same time (laughs) when you left the sport I, i talked to a lot of athletes and when they hang them up so to speak there's this void or this piece where they identified like their identity was based on I am like for me I am a baseball player I you know guys who played football I'm a football player and then fill in the blank of who they are Mm. next when you left did you did you feel that void was there that piece of like I there's like a piece of me missing because I'm not doing this anymore definitely there definitely was this adjustment uh much like if you were in a relationship, then you go through a breakup, you know, it's just an adjustment where you're like, Hmm, my routine is different. That thing isn't there. And so it, I didn't necessarily feel that I didn't know who I was. Like, um, I still felt like I had value and because I had done a lot of self work, I had done a lot of introspection, um, I certainly had teammates who, when they didn't make Olympic teams, I mean, they, they just absolutely catastrophized everything. You know, it was just absolutely chaotic. And you see that you've, you've seen people in a high level, like Olympic sports who suffer, or they really, really suffer from like suicide, depression, and anxiety. They have um, a lot of challenges mentally because it's a lot of buildup years and years of buildup to one single event and uh, it, it's a, there's a lot of pressure that a lot is self-imposed, but even externally, you know, th- it's like um, p- 
people don't know what you're doing other than the Olympic year, right? They're only paying attention. So then if you're not there, it seems like you're not important. Um, I luckily was like, I know I have purpose. I know that what I was doing that whole time, all of the work that I've done on myself is going to translate because I know I can help other people after this. So I knew like I was going to go into mindset coaching, uh, mostly focus on athletes to help everyone. Cause I believe everybody is a high performer, whether you know it or not. <laughs> so, um, but it was still sad. It was very, I was sad because it is, it's like losing someone. And so it was very challenging at times. And there was like, when I was doing skeleton, unfortunately, there was a lot of like toxicity within my team and stuff. And so you, you know, your mind, you ruminate and you get, you get bitter and there's like resentment over here and things like that. And like, ultimately I'm, I'm grateful for the whole experience because it's made me for who I am, who I am. And that I think to be able to, you're not necessarily going to have that perspective immediately. Right. But to eventually be like, you know, I, I am so grateful for that because I would not be who I am without it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be, I've learned the lessons that I learned. And again, I believe everything happens for a reason. And so uh, I redirected my focus towards the coaching. And then also like I went back into Olympic weightlifting. I competed just for fun. So I could have like a competitive outlet because I did, I, I came to this planet to be an athlete. Like that was just one of my gifts so I naturally am going to do something like that anyway. It just isn't at the same level, but I still, you know, I still have the ability to do that. Luckily. It's such a great point. And before we started recording, I was sharing a story of a guy that I just interviewed. It'll, it'll be on right before this episode, Bill Matthews, who he had just got done doing a trail marathon and he was looking for something to compete against. And so he set it up. I'm going to walk around with a kettlebell everywhere I go. And that was just his level of competition. So it doesn't necessarily have to be once you're done, you're done. It's right. Okay, well, let me find something else to compete. And it might only just be competing against yesterday's you mm -hmm. and getting a little bit better than, than that person was. The other thing that I found fascinating was you were talking about the toxicity amongst your team, right? Mm. And I, when I was in my uh, undergraduate, I studied not only education, but sociology. And I was such a, it was so fascinating to me, like how, group dynamics work and how, you know, things happen in social situations so much so that I believe it should be taught in school. Like, how do you, how do you manage handling group dynamics? Because every group has its own unique, like brain and chemistry <laughs> and heart. And so that's something that I believe that should be taught in school. After Definitely. your experience, everything that you've gone through, if you had an opportunity to go back and write curriculum for something in school <laughs> that kids should learn that they're just not taught ever what's something that you think should be infused into education right now that would really help kids perform in their adult life in some way oh my god well i guess uh emotional intelligence for one um and i i think having an abundant mindset so i think what what, what made my team relatively toxic is that it's an olympic sport it's something that's happening once every four years there's very limited spots no one has money I'm making a general statement, but like, it's, it's super expensive. You don't get paid. Um, so everybody is coming from this place of lack, which is weird because you're like, wow, they're competing for the Olympics. They're like the best in the world. Yet it, when you're there, you're like, 
this like, and that was one of the reasons why I ultimately was okay with retiring because I was like, this energy is not going to elevate me to be higher. And I, and I, that's not an attack on anyone that I competed with. That's just the nature of that sport, that environment. Um, it, it's tough. It's tough to, to feel like everything that you're doing is for this one thing and it's lack and I don't have it. And, um, so I would be like, you are an abundant being that should be in the curriculum. <laughs> like you are an abundant being, you are whole, regardless of if you accomplish this thing, you are the goat of your reality. All of your experiences are absolutely perfect for you. And yeah, there's plenty to go around. <laughs> I love that. Um, I'm going to, I have two more questions to ask, but before I do, Meg, uh, let us know where we can find you. How do we get in touch with you, your channels? Uh, I am at the Savage Meglet on all social media platforms. I'm the most active on Instagram. You can DM me with any questions. I love answering and I love talking about mindset and anything high performance. Love it. And um, all right. So uh, second to last question is, Give me an, an example of um, either a podcast to listen to, a book to read, something if I'm, you know, like, like a kid that's listening to this right now, something that I could use to motivate me. Oh, to motivate you. Okay, let's see. Um, so one of my mentors, Dr. Nate Zinzer, wrote the book, The Confident Mind. And I think it's very cool. It talks about how to be confident. Everybody wants that, right? Everybody wants to be confident. And so he talks about that. It gives practical ways how to do that. Uh, a lot of it has to do with reflecting on your own successes and your how you talk to yourself and having things prepared. So I tell people, you know, you talk to yourself more than you listen, <laughs> especially in stressful situations. Um, that's a really good one. And then um, I might be missing up, mixing, uh, missing the title. However, another book is um, Raising Athletes. So good for parents, uh, raising athletes and learning how to talk to your athletes, because sometimes that can be frustrating as a parent <laughs> and uh, feeling like you're you're talking to a brick wall. Uh, so that's a that's another good one. But uh, the confident mind for sure. Love that. And I mean, a lot of the work I do is like helping parents getting, get themselves out of their own way. Like it's not about yeah. you, let your kid have their moment. It's not, you know, definitely. I, I, I could go <laughs> on and on about that. All right. Last question is if someone's listening right now, they've already got a ton of value and entertainment from the last hour, Meg, if someone's listening, they press stop on the episode right now, what's one thing that they can do that by doing this one thing, it could really change what's going on in their life. Okay. So I'm the savage Meglet. So my advice would be to start telling savage stories, S-T-S-S, -S. start telling savage stories. Your mind is far more powerful than you realize. And what we focus on expands, what you continuously focus on shapes your reality. So you can harness the power of your mind by choosing, empowering thoughts and beliefs and telling savage stories and putting all your attention on what it is that you want. So that's my tidbit. And I'm going to use that. That's the, the title of the episode. Without a doubt, start telling <laughs> savage stories with Meg Henry. Thanks so much. I really appreciate this. has been awesome. Thank tell you Jack, so much. Tell Jack I said, what's up? I miss I you. will. <laughs> He'll hear it on this. <laughs> building Men audience, go one step further than you thought you could go. We'll see you next time on Building Men. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.